Every week here at Sojourn, we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week will be from Esther chapters four and five, but first, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would come and minister to us, Holy Spirit, weave the truth of your word into our hearts afresh this morning. Reveal to us more of your character and your love for us through our encounter with you through your word. And please glorify Jesus in our hearts as we read and meditate and sit here ready to receive your instruction. Illuminate our hearts, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Esther chapter four, starting in verse four, and I'm going to read through chapter five, verse eight. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and said, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone, and good morning to all of you uh, joining us online. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here. Always a privilege to be with you on the Lord's Day. Um, Today we are continuing our seven-week series through the book of Esther, and we have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes uh, the people of God. And the events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are living under the Persian Empire. They are stripped of their land, their temple has been destroyed, and they are living at the mercy of a foreign government. But as we've said, even even under these conditions, even under these conditions, God was advancing his purposes. He was preparing the world for the coming Messiah. And God called his people to submit to the empire, to honor the empire, to serve and pray for the empire, to to seek the welfare of the empire, as we heard last week um, from Jeremiah. But as we saw last week, this this is not how Mordecai responds when a man named Haman is promoted to a position of authority over him. Let's look at that again. Chapter three, verse one. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, that is, the supreme court of Persia, bowed down to him and paid homage to him, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So, verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom. And so we see there that after this, Haman casts, uh, he casts pur, which means he cast lots to determine when the genocide would take place. So essentially he is, he is rolling the dice to determine when to exterminate the Jewish people. And thankfully, the genocide is delayed for 11 months. And we should see the, we really should see the hand of God at work there. As it says in Proverbs 16, verse 33, you can cast lots all you want, but the decision, every decision is from the Lord. Now, obviously, Haman was capable of this murderous jealousy, plotting genocide against an entire people because of one person's disrespect is the definition of a disproportionate response. But at the same time, Mordecai was not being faithful in refusing to show honor to Haman because the king, this is very important, the king was not asking Mordecai to worship Haman. He was simply asking Mordecai to acknowledge Haman's authority. Now, as Justin mentioned last week, Mordecai had some pretty good reasons to dislike Haman. Haman was an Agagite. It doesn't mean he was an Aggie, but he was an Agagite an ancient enemy of the Jewish people. And to understand what Mordecai was faced with, imagine, imagine this, 30, imagine if 30 years from now, the vice president of the United States was a direct descendant of the head of the Taliban. 
That's what this is. How willing would you be to show honor to such a person? It would be very difficult. But listen, and this, this is difficult. It's hard for me to say this, but the, the Bible commands that we trust the Lord enough to show honor to governing authorities. Does that mean that we can never resist them? Of, of course not. I mean, the, the entire book of Esther is a story about resisting authority. But this is important. It is not a story about dishonoring authority or rebelling against authority. There is a difference, and our posture matters. Now, to his credit, Mordecai responds appropriately to the news of, of the impending genocide. At the beginning of, of chapter 4, we saw this last week, at the beginning of chapter 4, he repents. It says, when, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now this is, this is, a, this is the pattern throughout the Bible that those who repent will be redeemed. Those who make themselves low will be raised up. Those who accept their judgment before God will be delivered from their judgment by God. So Mordecai was, he was an unfaithful schemer, but now Mordecai responds like a faithful Jew. He tears up the garments, the same garments that marked his exalted position. Don't miss that. The same garments that mark his, his exalted position, he tears them. He even prioritizes repenting over returning to the seat at the king's gate. And I think that we can see in that a demonstrated willingness to, to give up all that he, that he most wanted. What Mordecai wanted most was power and position, but now he, find, he finds himself powerless and positionless. But rather than frantically grasping for whatever power he could find, Mordecai releases his grip and entrusts himself to the Lord. And remarkably, Remarkably, the rest of the Jews follow his lead. Like a good spiritual leader, Mordecai is the first to repent. I think, I mean, I think you can feel it with me here. There's something in this act that would be very good for us to consider and sit in for a moment. When awful things happen to us, we, we often seek control or some kind of certainty in order to not drown, in order to remain kind of on top of the waters. But all, we, all, we all had our respective responses to COVID when it first came out, but was our first act to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, in this moment, we are tempted to take control of our own lives but we want to entrust ourselves to you. Have mercy on us. Help us come to our aid. There's something there, I think, for all of us here. We are missing something when we let awful circumstances only enrage us to others and the world rather than to humble us before the Lord. 
But Mordecai is humbled. He is brought low. In fact, Mordecai is symbolically dead. And that's, what, that's the significance of sackcloth and ashes. It's like, it's like a walking dead person. This is symbolic death. But there's another indication that Mordecai is symbolically dead. And we see that in the fact that he is prohibited from entering the king's gate. It says this, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now to understand, to understand what's going on here, we need to compare Esther chapter four with Israel's temple system. To be unclean, to be unclean under the temple system was to be symbolically dead. And that, that sounds like a really big deal. To a certain extent it is, but it was pretty easy to become unclean. Uncleanness was, was a common experience for the average Israelite. But to be unclean under the temple system really just meant that you were you were ritually impure. You were, you were temporarily prohibited from participating in the temple and all of its activities. So if you wanted to regain access to the temple, you needed to be cleaned. You needed to be cleansed. As a symbolically dead person, you needed to be symbolically resurrected. So let's, take, let's just take a look at a slide together. Let's see if this comes up. So you can see here, I don't want to like totally turn my back to you, but can I do like a three-quarter here? Is that okay? Um, Israel's temple was arranged in three different tiers of holiness. You have the courtyard, you have the holy place, and the holy of holies. And each tier of holiness required greater levels of purity, greater, greater, greater levels of, of cleanliness, and we see, interestingly enough, we see the same uh, dynamic in Esther chapter 4. We see the same three tiers within the king's palace. You see, Mordecai is unclean. He is, he is symbolically dead. Thus, he can't enter through the, gate, the palace gate, which corresponds to the, to the temple. But, and just to pause here for a moment, Mordecai's dilemma is our dilemma. It's, it's the story of humanity. Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve shared intimate space and had complete access to God. Even take the garden, take the garden of Eden and overlay it on that temple. It's the same thing. But their rebellion and sin made them unclean and they were sent out of this palace garden temple and barred from reentry because they were unclean in their sin. So in essence, this fall clothed them in sackcloth and ashes too. We, as their offspring, all of us here, we lost access to the throne room of God in our sin. And like Adam and Eve and Mordecai, we were barred from reentry into our king's house. However, in our passage today, we see that Esther does have access to the king's palace, which corresponds, if you can see, to the holy place. It's where priests are. Esther's problem, Esther's dilemma, is that she does not have access to the throne room. She does not have access to the holy of holies. 
Verse 11, if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. See, if only Esther could access the Holy of Holies without perishing, perhaps the Jews would be cleansed and delivered. In other words, Esther is like the high priest on the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies was only open to Israel's high priest, and even then, only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. But just like the high priest, Esther is going to clothe herself in special garments. She is going to draw near to the throne room with great trepidation. She is going to enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of all the people to plead for their cleansing and their deliverance. And she is understandably hesitant to do so. But Mordecai is adamant. And thankfully so. It's time for Esther to speak up. It's time for Esther to stop hiding her identity as a Jew and plead for her people before the king. As Mordecai puts it, who knows? Who knows whether whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? In other words, it seems as though the Lord has made you queen for this very purpose, for this very purpose, to bear witness, to bear faithful witness. So Esther calls every Jew in Susa to hold a three-day fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now, if Esther is like the high priest, then we shouldn't be surprised to see that Esther is also exactly like Jesus. She's willing to bear witness even unto death. She's willing to face death in order to deliver the people of God just as Jesus, our high priest, faced humiliation and death on the cross and then rose from the dead in order to rescue us from certain death, to take off our sackcloth and ashes and bring us back into the presence of God, into that holy of holies. See, like Jesus, Esther is going to fast for three days while everything hangs in the balance. And then she will be raised and all of the people with her. Esther chapter five, verse one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, key, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. Once again, Esther wins the favor of the king. So Mordecai and Esther are learning that the, the strategy of cultural assimilation, whereby we, we just abdicate our responsibility to live distinctly before the nations, whereby we pretend not to be God's people, the strategy of cultural assimilation is not only dangerous, 
It's powerless. It does not bear fruit. It, it can't bear fruit. Why? Because the Christian faith is a total faith. We cannot simply exist as private members of, as, of the people of God. The Christian faith claims everything about us. It claims everything about the world around us, our minds, our emotions, our bodies, our homes, our bank accounts, our relationships, our jobs, our politics, our world. The Christian faith is a total faith, which means that it is a public faith with public claims. So like Mordecai, we should, we, we should, we should repent insofar as we have privatized our faith and kept it quiet. We need to repent insofar as we've taken lightly our, our membership within the people of God. We, we need to repent insofar as we've hidden our true identity at the expense of those who don't know Jesus. We must, we are invited to, and we must, go public with our faith, take our citizenship within the household of God seriously, and come out of hiding to share the gospel with others. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city in full view, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Mordecai went public. He went public at the very moment when going public had become deadly. Mordecai publicly identifies himself with a group of people who were facing extinction. And of course, Esther demonstrates this this same boldness. Esther and Mordecai are learning to trust the sovereignty of God in the midst of exile. Because again, remember, God's name is never mentioned in this book. He never speaks. He's never spoken to. But we can see his sovereign hand at work, and so Esther, so can Esther, and so can Mordecai. And when, when, when they see the sovereign hand of God at work, that is when they find the courage to stop hiding, stop abdicating, stop assimilating, and begin to bear faithful witness. And likewise, all of us, we, we as a family, we need to see and to trust the sovereign hand of God at work in the midst of our circumstances. The book of Esther teaches us that we cannot expect we cannot expect to have God speak to us directly every single time we face difficulty. We cannot expect God to perform a miraculous miracle every single time we're in trouble. Our Father, and I want to be gentle with this because this is something that I'm wrestling with. Our Father is a good Father who is always with us, always, always with us. His word attests to that. And yet at the same time, he is not a helicopter parent. He does not guard us from every mistake. He does not guard us from every single danger. More often than not, God gives us the freedom to fail. 
He gives us the opportunity to choose between unfaithfulness and faithfulness. And we can, we can either interpret that as a sign of his absence or we can trust his sovereign hand. We can trust that like a good father, God is giving us room to grow. Imagine with me just for a moment, this is sort of an aside. Imagine a parent who's always around their kid, always, how are you doing? What are you doing? Where are you going? Where are you having? What are you doing? What you? Like we would say, you need to back off and let them grow. See what they do. Is that parent gone? No, they're there. But they're not just on top of their children. He has a plan. He is gently guiding human history toward a fitting conclusion. But at the same time, he's using us, us, to bring it about. Just like Esther, God places us in particular cities, in particular neighborhoods, in particular vocations with particular spheres of influence so that we can learn to bear faithful witness in those places. We may never be called upon to bear witness in the, in the face of genocide. That probably won't be our life. It may not be for all of us. We may, but, but we are nonetheless called to bear witness. We may never have to say, if I perish, I perish. But we may have to say, if I'm shunned, I'm shunned. If I'm uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable. If I fail, I fail. If I lose my job, I lose my job. God is still good. He's still in control. He's still guarding human history and still guiding human history toward a fitting conclusion. And God is still using your and my small acts of faithfulness to, to do that very thing. In other words, we... In our generation now, your children that we just dedicated, we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Yeah? Now to conclude, I, wanna, I want to ask and answer a question. In what context does Esther choose to bear witness? In what context does Esther choose to bear witness? Let's look again at, at chapter five, verse three. The king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. Esther wins favor with the king, but he doesn't just welcome her into the throne room. He doesn't just simply agree not to kill her. He basically promises to give her whatever she wants. So we would expect her to just make the ask. There it is, Esther. Like, that's, that's just right down the center of the plate, right? Like that's, there it is, make the ask. Here it is. Please don't let Haman kill my people. But she doesn't do that. Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So the king and Haman came to the feast and once again, verse six, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. There it is again. He's asking a second time. Okay, now that we're at this feast, thanks for inviting us, this is wonderful. What can I do for you? 
What do you want? Here's a blank check. What do you want? Make the ask, Esther. Make the ask. It's right there. Verse 8, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Why is she doing this? <laughs> she invites him to a feast. She says, what, do you, what, what, what can I do for you? Come to a feast. They go to the feast. What can I do for you? Come to another feast. This has been a great dinner. Come back tomorrow night. Why is she doing this? I, the honest answer is, I don't know. <laughs> it reminds me of the Samaritan woman at the well in John's gospel. Jesus is telling her about the living water that he has that will create new life within a person and end their thirst forever. And she says, sir, give me this water. And instead of just telling her, it's me, believe in me, I'm right here. He says, go get your husband. It's curious. Right? It's just curious. So I don't know why she does this, but I do know that the decision to delay her request for tomorrow's feast is going to prove itself very, very important. Because as we see next week, the king is going to remember the loyalty of Mordecai in the middle of the night, this night, in between Esther's two feasts. I also think Esther is somehow using these feasts in order to outwit Haman because she's, she's winning the favor of both the king and Haman, because what she has to say will ultimately require the king to choose between the two of them. She's keeping her friends close and her enemies closer, and this is way before the godfather. But, in, but I want you to hear this, but in this palace, this is amazing. In this palace, Esther is Eve and Haman is the serpent, except this time she deceives him. Incredible. Eve is, de Eve is deceiving the serpent. It's a small picture of the undoing of what happened in the garden. It's a picture of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. He foiled the deception of our enemy and bore our sins in his own body in order to deliver us from death and welcome us back into the presence of the Father. Amazing. Back to my original question. In what context does Esther choose to bear witness? It's in the context of hospitality. It's in the context of a meal. Esther bears witness at a table with food and wine and conversation, and there is so much that we can learn from this. Specifically, there's a lot that we can learn about evangelism from this, that it, it is at our tables, in everyday conversation, in personal relationships, in generosity, in acts of kindness and welcome that we tell people about Jesus and what he's done. It's the way of Esther it's the way of Jesus. Every Sunday morning, God speaks to us, and sometimes he has difficult things to say to us, things that we struggle to hear, but he always does so within the context of his own hospitality. What is it like to hear really hard things from someone who won't welcome you? It's impossible. 
What about someone who's welcomed you, who loves you, who's with you, who's for you? Yes, they can say hard things to me. God says hard things to us, but he says them at a table. He says them within loving relationship. And just like that, we are called to extend this hospitality to our neighbors because we, we, all of us here, are also looking for opportunities to feast with friends and feast with neighbors. And sometimes it will take several meals before the time is right to tell them what we believe about Jesus. But that's okay. Invite them to another meal and to another meal. We pray the Lord would speak to them in the night. Not only God, has God given us a home in his son, he's made a home in us by his Holy Spirit. He will give us the words. He will strengthen us for the work he's promised to. The most important thing here, Sojourn, is that we are willing, willing to open our tables, to open our homes, to open our mouths as the Holy Spirit leads. The most important thing is that we trust the sovereign hand of God as we bear faithful witness to his goodness and grace. We must believe that we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, thank you for welcoming us, Lord, for feeding us, Lord, for forgiving us. Lord, for teaching us. Lord, I'm reminded in this moment of, of, of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 9 who, in, who invites all the people on the street to come into her home and to sit at her table that is set with good food and good wine so that we might become wise, that we might grow in wisdom. Lord, we know that you, Lord, you are the one who invites us into your home and sets a table. We're, we're about to eat at it just in a few moments. A table of hospitality, a table of generosity, a table of welcome, but a place where, a table at which we are taught and loved and welcomed and corrected and encouraged and strengthened. And no matter how many mistakes we've made, Lord, you hold a chair for us every day, all the time. Help us, Lord. Help us to go public with who we are and who you are. May we live with such generosity. May, be the, may, may those things be the, the weapons of our rebellion, love and patience, and mercy, purity of heart, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. May we, may we slay the enemy with those things. Slay the enemy that remains within us with those things. By your grace, we pray. We love you. We need you. Please help us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.